as you saw in the video, next week we begin a new sermon series. It will be called Present, and it will be about the Magi, also known as the Three Kings, the Wise Men. I'm, I'm hoping uh, that you're excited for the Christmas season, but even if you're not, I think this series will say a lot about why we ought to celebrate Jesus. And it is our kind of conviction that, that every year we say, hey, make Christmas this year about Jesus. And sometimes we don't really give any good reason except for Easter. And that's kind of how, how we picture things sometimes. Like, well, Jesus came so he could die and we jump right to that. But this year we're going to look at this story of these, of these men who literally left everything for a time. It's quite the opposite, right? Like we get so busy during Christmas that we kind of forget about Jesus. But these guys said, hey, there was a birth of a baby. Let's travel 900 miles. Let's spend 3.5 months just going to be where he is so that we can have an interaction with him. And I think it's it's going to be so fun to study them because they're kind of forgotten. I mean, they make it into the manger scenes, you know. But they're, we don't really talk about them. And, and so I'm excited to look at them and see really the true value of Christmas. Because apparently they found really the value, the worth of Jesus. And it caused them to celebrate just far differently th than we do. And, and what's really cool, and, and I wish I could say I planned this, but in our story today, we're really going to find the, the first mention of the wise men. Uh, and, and we'll see really where they come from and, and who they are. But we'll really see who the wise men are. Uh, and that's cool. And it will come, we'll come back to it in the next few weeks. But before we look at that, I just want to remind you of, of kind of what we've done. Uh, we, we're doing this series called Stories of Old. We're basing it off Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, the rest of the chapter really is just men and women who have demonstrated exactly what Hebrews 11.1 1 said. And we've taken a look at the stories of their lives. And my hope is kind of twofold uh, for what this series has done for you. Hopefully you remember every little detail. And I did... Such a good job of telling these stories that you'll know every single point. But really, I'm not that hopeful for uh, how awesome I am or how awesome you are. And so really, just here's kind of my hope. My hope is that you'll be compelled to read the Bible more. That's, that's one of my hopes from this series. That you'll go, those are good stories. I mean, I knew they were good when I was a five-year-old, but they were pretty good as an adult, too. And maybe I should go back and read them again. And I haven't even told you all the stories. And I've left out some because we have kids in the, in the service that, that are like, whoa, you can't talk about that in church stuff. And it's all right there in the Bible. And so one of my hopes as we've gone through this, this series is hopefully you've said, yeah, there's some good stories in there. And maybe some of you have never read the Bible and, and you get like, you get to Leviticus, maybe you've even tried and you get to Leviticus and, and you just stop because you think, well this, I don't want to read about sores on people's feet and stuff. But like, if you can just get past that, it's like a world of great, great literature, great stories, things that you will like and enjoy and hopefully learn and grow from. And so one of the things, I just hope that, that I've done a good enough job, and that's been really my goal, to not be very detailed, but just to tell these stories in a way that, that compels you to be excited about them again and, and pick up your Bibles and read all the other stories. The other thing that I really hope you've gotten out of this is that you should be striving to make a greater impact than you already are. I mean, these men were normal. We've talked about that. They were guys like us, women like some of you. And they they were able to accomplish mighty, great things 
for the Lord. And, and sometimes we just sell ourselves too short. And, and maybe it's the culture in which we live. Maybe it's the expectation set on us by our parents. Maybe it's low self-esteem. But, but we just think like, well, maybe I could talk to somebody about Jesus once or something like that. But these men like changed the world for the better and for the glory of God. And my hope is that, that just a little, just maybe just a, a teeny bit, you will say, maybe I shouldn't shoot for something so small and puny as I was rooting for before. But like I should try to do something just great for the glory of God. Now as, as we've gone through this, we've seen some great things that kind of are wrapped up in that last point. And I just quickly and in, in little short statements, and we'll put these out on Facebook later. But from Noah, we learn that faith matters. I mean, you can't do great things for God if you don't accept the fact that God is awesome in the first place. And for us who live now, accept that Jesus is the Savior of the world. From Joseph, we learn that faith perseveres. It doesn't matter how bad it looks, you continue to believe God and take God as His word and trust that what He has promised and shown you will come true. From Abraham, we learn that faith is simply believing God's word and obeying his commands. It's not something magical. It's not some kind of feeling. It's saying, God, you said it, and so I will believe it. From Moses, we learn that faith overcomes our flaws, our inabilities to speak, our inabilities to really think that we're good enough to do something, our inability to, to, to really accomplish is, is not important when God is on our side. From Rahab, we learn that faith overcomes social stigmas. It does not matter who you are or where you've been or what family you've grown up in. If you're not one of those Christian people by birth, it doesn't matter because when you place your faith in God, He can use you for great things. From Joshua, we learn that faith focuses on God's presence in our lives. Something that after the Magi series, we're going we're gonna to do another series called Wait. And I'm very excited for that because it's, sometimes I preach things because it seems right or God has kind of led us there as a church maybe. But sometimes things come up and it's like, this is exactly where I'm at right now. And right now God is teaching me, I think, a lot about waiting on Him to be with me. And to interact with me. And, and so we've learned that, that through Joshua that faith focuses on God's presence in our lives. And, and in January, the first two weeks, we're going we're gonna to talk about how to kind of wait for God's presence to be in our lives. From Samson, we learn that faith overcomes sin. I think that just about every woman in our church no longer likes Samson. And, and uh, from what I heard about conversations after that sermon, they're like, Samson's not a nice guy. How did he get in the Bible? I wish we could erase that. No, nobody said that. But but Samson was a sinner and a pretty wretched sinner by every kind of definition of the word. We would call him kind of just kind of bad, uh, his life. And yet he had faith in God and God was able to just kind of supersede all of the sin and accomplish his purposes through Samson. From David, we learn that faith is passionate. If we have a real faith in God, then we should be passionate about the honor and the glory of God. And from Elijah last week... We learn that faith results in earnest prayer. And if we don't earnestly pray, then we will not accomplish the things that, that we should be accomplishing. And today, we turn our attention to a man named Daniel who ends up in a lion's den. And what we'll see is probably the hardest of, of everything that we've seen. And that is that, that faith should compel us, a real faith in God, believing Him and taking Him at His word and trying to be obedient to Him, should cause us to be willing to leave everything. 
We're going to look at Daniel 3 through 6 today. So if you want to open up your Bible there, I'll give you the background information. I'll just catch you up on chapters 1 and 2 mainly. The Jewish people, and we've seen this. The other cool part of this is, side note, I didn't include this in my notes, but side note, we've kind of seen a picture of the Old Testament as we've gone through this series because we've covered almost the entirety of the Old Testament. And uh, we've said this uh, at least once now. The Jewish people had turned their backs on God, and so God sent them into exile. And that has happened again in the story that we will look at today. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was his name, looks out and he says, Hey, here's what I want you to do to his officials and his rulers. I want you to find some of the best men in the land, the Israelite youngsters, and I want you to raise them up, to educate them, to make them ready to serve in my court. They will be kind of like the, the best of the best. And they will be able to serve me. And then we read this really interesting thing, that, that Daniel and these other three guys that, that you will know, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, you go, I don't know who that is, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with their Babylonian names, these men are sitting in this jail cell or wherever they sat, and, and they see that they are going to get fed food that would be against the religious law to eat. And so Daniel goes to the leader, the warden of where they're staying, and he says, we can't eat this. And the warden says, well, if you don't eat the good food, then you may not be as healthy or as handsome as the other guys, and I'm going to get in big trouble because I'm supposed to make you look good and teach you and make you sound good and all of those things. And this is what we read in Daniel 1, 18-20. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And so we see in this story that despite the fact that they refused to eat the food that was not okay for them to eat, God made them healthier and stronger, better looking, smarter than all of the other men. And the king looks at him and he's like, these guys are the best. And even more, we read this, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. So these men, right from the onset, right from the beginning of our story, before we even get to the real story, they say, hey, we're not going to do something that dishonors our God. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you people think we should do, what makes us healthier. We are going to do what is best for God. And then, chapter 2 of, of the book, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And the astrologers, they come to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, we can interpret your dream for you. And then they try to interpret his dream, but they can't figure it out. And, and they come back to Nebuchadnezzar and they say, hey, just tell us the dream one more time and maybe we'll get it then. And he says, look, you're just buying time, which was true. And he says, you can't do it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to have all the people killed throughout the whole kingdom that are astrologers and wise men. And this is what we read in Daniel 2, 10 through 13. And I wouldn't read this if we didn't have a new series coming next week. But listen to this. The astrologers answered the king. There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the 
wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put all the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guards, had gone to put the put to death the of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officers, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went to the king and asked for time, so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to the house and explained the matter to his friends Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery, so that he and his friends not, might not be executed with the rest of the... Very good. Of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So Daniel interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar honors Daniel and his God, saying that his God is God of gods and Lord of lords. And then he places Daniel in a high position. In a couple more verses, he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its... You're a little late on that one. Wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, at same guys that we've already met, this is their Babylonian name, administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now this worship of God by Nebuchadnezzar must have been short-lived or misinformed, maybe fake, we don't know. Maybe he was caught up in the emotion. Because the next thing we see at the very beginning of chapter 3 is that King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the province officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other providential officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, that is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. I'll stop there. Now we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out in this audience. Remember, they are some of the rulers of the land now. And they apparently in the midst of this refuse to bow down when the trumpet and the lyre and all the musical instruments are played. They refuse to bow down. And so some of the officials, they go to Nebuchadnezzar. And they say to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, there's some guys, some of those Jewish kids. They're refusing to bow down to this golden image that you have made. Nebuchadnezzar is furious with them. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he gets them and he calls them up and he's angry. And they say, he says, hey, why did you refuse to bow? I'm going to give you one more chance to bow down to this golden image that I have made. And they say this awesome thing. They say, we don't need a second chance, king man. Because there is no way, whether you kill us or not, that we are going to bow to your stupid golden image. They probably didn't say stupid, but your golden image. And then Nebuchadnezzar's really mad. I mean, it, 
If you get offered a second, have you ever offered somebody a second chance and they say, I don't want your stupid second chance. I'm not doing it anyway. That makes you really mad, right? If you weren't already mad, I mean, can you imagine saying that to your kid? Okay, I'm going to give you one more chance. And they're like, I don't need a second chance. I already told you I'm going to disobey. So what are you going to do about it? And so Nebuchadnezzar is angry. Very, 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 very angry. And he orders that a fire is started. And he orders, and I don't know why, because fire will kill you no matter what. But he orders that this fire is made hotter and hotter. And then he is ordered, that Sh- he ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be thrown into the fire. The fire is so hot, the Bible tells us, that as the soldiers, the policemen, whoever they were, are taking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to put them into this furnace, they are burned up trying to get the guys in there. And then, all of a sudden... We see this awesome part of the story that if you grew up in Sunday school, you know. If you grew up in a Christian home, you know. But it's so cool to think about now. King Nebuchadnezzar and his officials look at the furnace. And they're like, didn't we put three guys in there? They're like, yeah, we put three guys in there. Are you sure we put three? I thought there was three. And they're like, yeah, but there's four in there now. Now there's much debate over who this is, but I'm pretty convinced myself that that these men are standing in a furnace with Jesus before he was born on this earth. Jesus before he was incarnate as a human being, the second person of the Trinity, the Logos. And they are standing in this fire alive. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey guys, come out. That's always a tough conversation, I imagine, right? I'm really... Sorry that I put you into the furnace. I think that my my policemen, they heard me wrong. I said, make it warm in their house. And I don't know what you say when somebody comes out of a furnace that you have just tried to kill. It might be the only time in the history of the world, except for what we're going to read in just two chapters, that somebody's ever had to have this conversation. But they come out, and Nebuchadnezzar declares that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God is the God of the universe once again. But apparently this is short-lived, because in the next part of our story, we see that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel 4, 4 through 7 says this, I, Nebuchadnezzar, did you know Nebuchadnezzar had a part in the Bible that he actually wrote? It's kind of interesting. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid as I was lying in the bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. And so he gets Daniel and he tells Daniel the dream. And Daniel is upset by the dream. And he's upset because he knows that the dream is really a condemnation of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he goes to the king and he says, Hey, king, if only this dream was about you. And the king tells him, he says, Hey, don't worry about it. It's okay. You can tell me what it means is, is what he's really saying. You can tell me. You can share it with me. I'm not going to put you into a furnace or anything. Just let me know what it means. And, and Daniel says, Here's the deal. You are going to go crazy for a while. And you are going to go live in the woods and eat the food of animals until you humble yourself and admit that it is God who is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the world. 
You see, Nebuchadnezzar had become arrogant. He had, he had become prideful and thought that, that he was so great that he was able to build this mighty kingdom. And then we see, not long later, 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar is hanging out on the roof of his palace and he looks out over it. He did not learn his lesson from what Daniel explained in the dream. And he says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? That's a funny thing for a guy to say that's already declared a couple of times that, that God, our God, the God we know, Yahweh, is the God of the universe and that people should worship Him in essence, right? But he looks out over his kingdom and says, I am mighty and I did this for the glory of my majesty. And immediately a voice comes and it declares the same thing that Daniel has already declared. And we see in this weird story in scripture that Nebuchadnezzar goes nuts. He goes out into the woods. He eats the food of animals. He grows a huge beard. And then after a while, and we don't know how this looks, but I'd love to know how he figured it out in all his craziness. He looks at God and declares that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms. And immediately all the people, his leaders, they come out and they find him and he's restored back into his position as king of the Babylonian Empire. Now, I don't know about this, but I believe, and this is a side note, I guess, that we will someday see King Nebuchadnezzar in heaven with us. I, I, when you read this story, and I kind of forgot this, he, he comes across like a man who probably accepted that Yahweh was the true God of the world. But when you fast forward a little bit, there's a new king on the throne. And this is where we pick up the story in, in Daniel chapter 5. A king named Belshazzar. And apparently Belshazzar does not feel the same about Nebuchadnezzar and God. Because he is having a party. And he's having a party. And at this party, I don't know if it's getting wild or crazy or what. But he says, hey, you remember how Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple of that Jewish God, that Israelite God, he took those gold and silver goblets. Can you bring those down so we can continue our party and have something a little nicer to drink out of? And whoever was in charge of doing that type of thing goes and they get the gold and the silver that had been in the temple of God and he brings it back. And Belshazzar with his wives and his concubines... What a disaster. Uh, is having a party, having this party, and they're drinking out of God's silverware, basically, God's goblets. And all of a sudden, and this is something that seems like we'd love to see it, but that's apparently not kind of the feel of the atmosphere. A hand appears out of nowhere and begins to write on the wall. And apparently it's not a friendly hand. If this was uh, a Christmas carol, this would be the third ghost, the ghost of the future, because Belshazzar is so scared, it says he's shaking at his knees. Belshazzar is freaked out by this hand. And he calls in the, the wise men of the town, and, and he says, hey, what, what's going on? We need to know what's happening here. And they say, we, we can't read it. We don't know. We can't help you out here. And one of his wives looks at him and says, hey, there's this man named Daniel who's now an old man and he has the ability to interpret dreams. He has the ability to solve riddles. This is the guy that will give you the answer. In Daniel 5, 13 through 16, this is what we read. Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. 
the and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you were able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel, an old man now who apparently is no longer scared to offend the king. I see this progression in, the, in Daniel's life that's really cool. He says, hey, you can keep your gifts. I'll tell you what it means. He says that Nebuchadnezzar had gone crazy and gone into the woods and had humbled himself and recognized God as sovereign. And then he says to Belshazzar, he, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, not actually Belshazzar's father, maybe grandfather, but somebody in his lineage, he humbled himself, but you, even though you knew about all of this, have chosen not to humble yourself. And then he reads the writing on the wall. Mean, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have weighed on the scales and been found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then Belshazzar, even though Daniel was against it, clothes him in purple and makes him third in all the kingdom as far as power and might goes. But it's very short-lived because that very night, the Bible says that very night, what a coincidence, the Medes take over. And Darius becomes king of the Babylonian people. And Darius, as a powerful leader, appoints 120 satraps to rule the kingdom. And he put three administrators over all of them. One of which was Daniel. So he still had quite a bit of power. And Daniel becomes closer to the king because he shows himself to be wiser and a better leader, more brilliant, closer to God, really. Maybe the king didn't recognize that. And so the other guys, the satraps and the other administrators, become very jealous of Daniel. And they begin to look for a way that they can bring a charge against him. And then they say this thing that's so important. Just to know Daniel and who he was and why God used him in such mighty ways. They say this, We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Oh, let that be said of me. I mean, let that be said of me. I will never find anything against him unless it has something to do with where his God contradicts what the law of the land says. And that's the only way that we'll ever find something against Chad because he has so chosen to follow his God. I mean, what a brilliant statement. We will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Now I'm going to read the rest of this story from here on out because it's so good. Like the story of Elijah last week. It's a story that you need to know, that you need to have heard. And, and our, our country is becoming less and less literate. And so for me to assume that you've heard this in its entirety would be idiotic. And, and here's what it says. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, "Making Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, Darius, your majesty shall be thrown in the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in a writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. This sounds like a setup, right? I mean, if anybody asks you to do something that can never be undone, just don't do it. I don't care what, even if it seems really good. 
Like, hey, sign this contract. I'll give you a dollar a day for the rest of your life, but it can never be undone. Just say no. I mean, just always say no if something can never be undone. It's a setup. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he has done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prayed to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save them, save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king has issued can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel. And he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Mark Batterson wrote a manifesto called All. And in it he says this, Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. In Hebrews 11.33 we see that by faith it says he shut the mouths of lions. But the greater testimony in faith here is not that the mouths of the lions were shut. And as we look at Daniel chapters 3 through 6, I don't think, even though it's great for when you're a little kid and the stories are awesome and make you feel like God can do anything, which is true, I don't think this story is really, really about the salvation of these people from fire and lions. I think that it is more about a willingness to give everything for God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel all had one thing in common, and that is that they were willing to die in order to bring honor to the God that they served. Daniel 6, 26 and 27 says this, He is the living God that endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. Then you see what King Darius 
A non-God-fearing man declared is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and a man named Daniel knew all along. That God was God and that his kingdom, no matter if they died by fire or by lion, would endure forever and ever and ever. You see, these men looked and they said, look, if I have to give my life, and this is exactly what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, if I have to give my life, then it doesn't matter. Because I will serve God anyway because I recognize that He is the true God and the only thing that deserves my worship. Daniel 3.28 says it best about those three, especially Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trusted in Him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except for their own. Let me read it to you again because that's really the driving force here. These men didn't know they were going to live. I mean, they didn't go into the furnace or the lion's den knowing, hey, God definitely is going to save me. That's why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I know that I will live and there's no cost to me. They did it because they loved God enough to do it, no matter if it cost them. Again, they trusted in Him and defied the king's commands and were willing willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. And the same could be said of Daniel, right? Except Daniel took it a step further. Daniel was willing to give up his life rather than not be disobedient, rather than be disobedient to his God. Daniel said, look, I'm going to take it one step further. I don't care what you say, I'm going to keep worshiping my God. Even if I could avoid, you know, worshiping your God and live whatever, I'm going to go on my knees in front of the window and I'm going to pray to my God just like I have every other day because that is what God has asked me to do and I don't care where you throw me because that is what God deserves. You see, in these stories, we see this uh, important, amazing truth that if we want to serve God in mighty ways, then our faith in Him must compel us to be willing to give up everything and here's my guess this is what i'll venture out on a limb and say as we've gone through this series this is our 10th week now on this series you've probably thought it would be really cool if i could do something bigger for god if i could accomplish a little bit more for him even just a little bit more than i'm already accomplishing for him if i could just do something a little bit better for the glory of God. If you're a Christian, I, I'm guessing, because we've talked about it for nine weeks now, that that thought has crossed your mind in some form or fashion along the way. But let me guess that the second thought has been about something that you would have to give up. Well, if I do that, if I, if I go out and I try to do that, then eh, it might cost me some money. Or, well, I just... I don't have any time to give up right now. Or, you know, I really like that TV show. And I don't really want to give that up. And, and, and or, You know, there's like a million things. But I'm guessing that that's the line of thought for you. You go, I would love to do more for God. But, I really like this. This is important to me. And the truth is that most of them, TV shows aside, most of them come back to your life. I mean, right, you think like, well, my boss might not like it if I'm not available during those hours. And that comes back to you thinking, I need money in order to stay 
alive because I have to pay my bills and so on and, and so forth. And most of the things that we worry about at the end of the day come back to this idea that we are trying to protect what we view as the number one as- asset in the world, and that is me. And in the story of these four men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't put that, that butt in there. They say, well, I'd really like to do this for God. I think it's what God wants, so I will. But it might cost me my life, so what? But it might cost me my position of power and how much the king likes me, so what? It might cost me something great, so what? I'm not going to bow to that idol. I'm not getting down on my knees. And I don't care what that king declared. I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to pray in the window like I do every day because that's what my God has called me to do. I'm willing to give up everything. And a great thing is, God doesn't make them give up anything in the story. And you may not have to. I mean, they actually, through their, their willingness to serve God at all costs, they actually grow their power in the kingdom. It's pretty cool. I mean, they get more money out of it. But some of us are so scared in the first place to give up whatever it might be that we never, we never move God's kingdom forward. I mean, most of us would be like, well, God will forgive me later. I'll just get down on my knees this once and then guess what? His kingdom would not have been moved forward and Nebuchadnezzar would have not declared that our God, Yahweh, is the God of gods and King of kings. What if Daniel would have been like, oh, he might be mad at me if I share this dream with him. Then maybe Nebuchadnezzar would have still gone crazy and gone out of the woods, but he never would have realized there was a solution and that was to humble himself. You see, all these aspects of faith we've looked at What we find is that the people who really change the world for God are willing to give up everything for God. I've told this story to some of you. I maybe have said it in this series. It's been ten weeks. But but I I had a professor. His name was Dr. Wright. I think I did tell this, but it's worth telling again. And and Dr. Wright was my missiology professor, professor of missions. Taught us about how to be a missionary basically and 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 he said when he went and to be a missionary in Brazil which was his about 30 year career before I knew him he said that people would always look at him when he was going or headed back to Brazil into the Amazon and they would say I could never leave my family and Dr. Wright would kind of look with a twinkle in his eye because he always had a twinkle in his eye and go yeah because I hated mine <laughs> and he made this great point He didn't go because he had a a messed up family situation and nothing to lose. He went because he deemed God worthy of giving up everything. Even family Christmas dinners and all the things that we cherish as far as hanging out with those we love. Dr. Wright didn't go because he didn't have anything to lose. He went because he was willing to lose everything. And most of us don't accomplish anything because we are unwilling to give up Almost anything. I mean, we are almost willing, if you can admit it, in American culture to almost give up anything. We're like, even really, I joke about TV shows kind of, but that's true, right? I mean, how many people are like, I don't have any time to do anything. I have four shows that I watch every night, but I don't have any time to do anything. I walk through my neighborhood sometimes. 
And I see in people's windows. I don't stare in people's windows, just to be clear about that. But I see in people's windows. And everybody has the TV on. And I'm not a big TV guy, and so I don't understand it really, the draw to it. I don't really get it. I mean, like, go accomplish something on your own instead of watching other people do something, like kill zombies or whatever. Do something yourself. Like, here's a novel idea. How about you stop watching other people accomplish something great, and you get up and you go accomplish something great. Just an idea. But I do like the Blazers, and I watch that. But the point here... And hopefully you're understanding. Hopefully you feel a little guilty right now. I hope you do. I haven't called you by name. That's the Holy Spirit if you do feel guilty. But, but I, really, I, I, really hope, I, re- I really hope that you will look at this story. And this is the question that I want you to ask yourself. What am I currently unwilling to give up? And maybe you won't leave here and go, sweet, I'll give it up. And you might not have to give it up. I'm not even saying, what do you need to give up? Because I, that's, really, that's a long conversation with God, I think. But what are you unwilling to give up? Because whatever you're unwilling to give up, it's probably the thing that's preventing you from actually accomplishing great things for God. And really, if faith is believing in in what we hope for and confidence in what we do not see, and God has told us that, that if we give up things, then we get just infinitely more when we get into heaven someday then faith is really saying, I don't care if you take my life because I have a better life to look forward to. I don't care if you take my money because if you take it for the glory of God, then I get sevenfold that at least when I come into the kingdom. The greatest people are the people who are willing to just give up everything. And you can look and you can go through history. And I think I kept thinking as I thought about this sermon of of Jim Elliott, and maybe you don't know his story, but you should read his story. Uh, And he he knew that he was supposed to witness to this group of people called the Aka Indians, and and him and some other guys, Nate Saint being one, and and forgive me for not knowing the other two guys' names. They haven't come out quite as famous. But but they, they flew in. And they were going to tell these people about Jesus and then they got killed. But they were totally willing to do that and they knew that that was a risk. And then even crazier, these guys' wives who knew that their husbands had been killed wanted these people to know about Jesus so much that they flew in to tell them about Jesus. I mean, they should be even more famous because they're like, yeah, they already killed our husbands, but here we come because it is more important to us that we do what God has called us to do than than we have our own lives. And all of those people in that tribe became Christians through it. See, there's a difference made. I'm not saying tomorrow you're going to be willing to give everything for God. I'm not willing to give everything for God right now. But I do think we need to have a conversation with ourselves and with God about the things that we are unwilling to give up right now. Because those are the very things. Those are the very things that are preventing us from doing amazing things for the glory of God. The honor and power of the God that we serve. Some of you may not be Christians. You're going, well, why would I give up anything? And this is what I want you to know. And this is what I found. And and while I I talk about us and how we've been unwilling as Christians that sit here to give up everything for God. What I do want you to know if you're not a Christian. Is that when I have chosen to give things up for God. I have always... I have always been blessed by the return that I get back more than I 
than I was before. And, and, and what, I, what I think that you need to hear if you're not a Christian is, is you're going like, okay, this Christian thing, and, and hopefully you take it this seriously because a lot of Christians don't. If I, if I accept that Jesus died for me and he wants my whole life, then that means I've got to like give up a lot of things. And I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. And what I need you to hear, even though Christians don't represent it sometimes, we don't demonstrate it to you sometimes, but this is true. The more we give up, the more we get from God. And sometimes we don't always see that here on this planet, but, but we trust that we will see that in eternity. And so whatever you think, like I can't give up partying, I can't give up uh, the fun that I have. A lot of people think uh, Christians don't have any fun. I don't know why that is. I have a lot of fun. Uh, but but I'll have to give up my fun and I'll have to give up the, you know this relationship that I'm in. What I, what I want you to know is that even though Christians don't always demonstrate it, what you give up will fail in comparison to what you will gain through a relationship with Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you and it's so hard, God, because of our sinful nature to give up things. Lord, and I... I, There's some things, God, that we are willing to give up but we struggle to give up and usually we call those sins and, and God, we all have those. And Lord, those are important that we stop and we work through our sins but this morning, God, I'm really just... What I'm asking for, God... Is not the the sins that we commit that you help us with those as much as as the things that may not be sinful but we're unwilling to give for for you God and um, our lives is a big one God and um, and it's easy for us to say I'd die for Jesus I mean if somebody pointed a gun in my head I'd die for him but Lord the truth is Lord you know when you look at my life even and, and you look at Christians' lives in this culture, that while we can claim to give up our lives or be willing to give up our lives, when, when we look at the details of our life, there's hardly anything we're getting, willing to give up. And so how, God, could we be willing to, to die for you if we're unwilling to give up a little bit of our time, a little bit of our money, a little bit of our energy, willing to, to go to a different place? Maybe it's our state. You know that's one for me, God. Um, I would... It, it would be very difficult for me to leave the greatest state in the country, the greatest place on earth, Lord. And um, and so, Lord, I pray right now in these moments that in the hearts of our people, mine included, God, that you would just bring things forward and, and, and to the surface that, that we could kind of know the things that right now we're unwilling to give for you and Lord, we could start to, to deal with those and see them as, as really idols. Things that we care about more than we do about honoring you, Lord. And, and Lord, I'm sorry for this, but it's probably true that we won't fix it tomorrow. Probably not today unless you do something miraculous. And I pray that you would. But Lord, I pray that we just begin at least to work on those things. And, and, and really uh, to seek whether or not we need to give them up. And maybe you won't call us to, but, but Lord, just, just move us to a place where we are, are more willing to say goodbye to whatever you're asking us to say goodbye to. I thank you for the amazing stories that we have seen in the Old Testament. And God, almost every one of them, in fact, I think every one of the stories we've looked at, the men and the women were willing to die for obedience to you. 
And it definitely separates them from most of us, Lord. And, and God, I thank you not just for the men we read about in Scripture, but you know that in the last year, it's really been on my heart that we remember the, the men and women, God, throughout the history of the church after the Bible, that suffered and died for your glory. I mean, people that, that refused to denounce you and were burned at the stake. People who refused to even just be disobedient to you, to, to, to turn their backs on you for a minute, God, who were brutally killed. And, and I pray, God, that they would serve as a testimony to us that while it feels difficult and maybe it feels like nobody else is willing to give up anything, we, God, we can do it by the power of your Holy Spirit because your Holy Spirit has led men and women throughout history to do it. Lord, we took communion this morning. And it is a reminder, Lord, that you were willing to give everything for us. And it's so backwards. I mean, you, lo- you left, God, perfection in heaven to live on an earth with problems and pain and difficulty. Lord, and, and, and you... You left your family while on earth in order to do ministry. And God, then you gave up your life. But in those moments, you lost the relationship with the Father. But just for a moment. And I know that was the worst for you. And I pray, Lord, as as we remember it and we think about it and, and we're standing, Lord, with some of the elements even in front of us now, that, that, we would, that we would know that you deserve all of us because you gave all of you, Lord. What an incredible gift. I mean, God, you, you deserve all of us. It's, we deserve none of you, but you gave it to us, Lord. You gave us yourself, and we thank you so much for that. Let it drive all of our lives. I pray these things in your name. Amen.